Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good? Good news. Between services, I drank a Red Bull, so now I'm live. So last service, I was struggling. You picked the right service to come to today. It's good to be here with you uh, in the worship of God. It's such a pleasure to see you guys. I love Love you guys, love opening up the Word, love worshiping with you guys. So if you have a Bible, and, and I hope you do, go ahead and begin to make your way over to Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to uh, land here, or launch from rather today. Uh, and if you're just joining us, welcome. We're in the new year, and, and so we ended last year and started a new year with a, a, just a short six-week series before we go into Jonah, and then before we go into the book of Acts uh, later on in the year. Uh, this series is called Life on Purpose, and it's just... Out of this conviction that because God has created us as image bearers and he, he desires for us to live life on purpose, like not to drift, not to just kind of hope that we arrive somewhere one day. And so we looked at the, the first week that this principle of the path and we said that your direction, not your intention determines your destination. So, so um, we, we might have a lot of intentions how we would like to do finance, finances or uh, relationships or careers or moral, moral paths, uh, but, but actually the, the path where we're on leads to a destination for better or for worse. Sometimes we say, man, that, they're, a, they're a train wreck. And that just is this knowing that, that, that they're on a path that's not going to a good place. Uh, but we want to end in a good place. And the Bible has a lot to say about all those paths. But ultimately, Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, hey, uh, regardless of all those paths, there's, there's two paths that you really need to know about. And in Matthew chapter 7, he said there is a, a wide path and it's easy. A lot of people are on it. But in the end, it leads to destruction. Don't go there. He says, then, there, then there's a narrow path. It, it's hard to find. Few find it. And it's hard, but in the end, it leads to life. And, he, and he's this invitation by, by the Son of God to walk with him on that path, because in the end, it leads to life. And so then we ask the question in the second week, okay, well, what does it look like to walk on that path? What does God want us to, accom- want, want to accomplish in us? And, and we just said this, God simply wants to uh, grow our faith. God is really into our faith. And that simply just means that, that we come to a place in our lives where we say, God, I, I believe you are who you say you are, and that you'll do everything you promise you will do. And so we, we looked at that. And then last week, Matthew came and preached, and he says, now, as we travel on this path, there's some guardrails on the path. There is a guardrail. And it's, it's the word of God. And he looked at Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? And, and the word uh, guides us. The word protects us. The word leads us. It's, it's like a street lamp on the road. It shines on our path so where we, we can know where we can go. And today we're going to look at how do we, on the journey recalibrate our direction. Remember I said in the first week, if you have a, a GPS, Apple Maps or Google Maps, and it, it asks, where are you at? Where do you want to go? Gives you a course, but sometimes you get off course and it reroutes you. It, it recalibrates your path. How do we recalibrate our path? Anyone here ever used the compass on their phone? Like, is, uh, I thought it was just a dad thing, but me and Andy Davidson, we use our compass sometimes to figure out. But when you turn it on sometimes, if you haven't used it for a while, you got to do this like figure eight thing. It's recalibrating. It, it needs to find true north. 
Or, or maybe another illustration to help you. 1914, um, shortly after the Titanic sunk, there was another uh, tragedy at sea outside, off the coast of Virginia. Uh, the Monroe sunk. 41 sailors died, and Congress convened a, uh, a hearing to figure out what went on. And, and so this other ship, the Nantucket, had broadsided it, and the Monroe sank. And so the captain of the Nantucket was a guy named Osman Berry. And Osman w- was arranged on charges, and, and then... Uh, they, they brought all before the senators and, and they began to grill the other captain, Captain Johnson. And they discovered during that time something tragic. They discovered that the, the, the compass that Captain Johnson was using had never been calibrated. Or, or put it another way, uh, in the New York Times reported it this way. Captain Johnson navigated the Monroe with a steering compass that deviated as much as two degrees from the standard magnetic compass. And that his steering compass had never been adjusted in, in the one year he was master of the Monroe. And so it ends in this tragedy. And at the end, the New York Times reports that these two captains grab hands and they begin to sob into each other, onto each other's shoulders. It's, just a, it's a tragic consequence of misorientation. For the most part, for a whole year, that, that compass, though, it was just a little bit off. It, it would get the ship from one place to the next until it didn't. So how do we recalibrate our compass? Well, the Word of God uh, says a lot about this, but uh, specifically what we're going to look at today in terms of recalibrating our heart is the role of prayer. The Bible says a lot about prayer. This is not a survey on prayer in the Bible. I want to specifically ask the question, how does prayer realign our lives, realign our hearts in a Godward direction as we walk on a life on purpose? Now, think about your prayer life. I think about my prayer life being a follower of Christ for 25 years. There's ups and downs, but by and large, there's a, there's a general sense of disappointment. I, I just kind of wish that I'd pray more. I kind of wish that I had more intimate times. I wish I, uh, that, they, that I would understand prayer more. I've read books on it, and, 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 and just this kind of a sense of dissatisfaction. And I'm not alone. Uh, Billy Graham, when he was interviewed towards the end of his life, they asked, hey, in light of all the things that you've done, is there anything else you'd do, do it differently? He said, I would pray more. So I'm in good company. But if I was to ask to do a survey in this room, I think probably everyone in this room would say, prayer is really, really important. And he'd be like, yeah, that's right. Prayer is really, really important. And if I followed up with a second question, so tell me, are you satisfied with your prayer life? And I think by and large, we would say, No. So why the disconnect? We, we know the Bible's clear. Prayer is very, very important. And yet for most of us, we're like, man, I wish, I wish we understood it more. I wish I did it more. I wish all these things. And why is that? Well, we should do some self-reflection. First of all, I want to give an encouragement. If you're here and you're like, prayer is important, and I, I just feel like I, I, I haven't connected with God in a deep, meaningful way through prayer, and I'm disappointed with that. that. I want you to be encouraged. First of all, that's an evidence of God's grace to you. Like, like if, if you had no uh, spirit in you, if you had no desire for God, then you would not desire prayer at all. You'd be like, who cares? I don't care about prayer. But so if you have a dissatisfaction, it's the spirit of God in you who desires for you to commune with your heavenly father and then the disconnect on this side of eternity because he's infinite, we can always do more, there's going to be a little bit of disappointment. And so be encouraged. If you have no disappointment, be discouraged. You should be praying that God would break your heart for him. 
Well, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, well, honestly, I mean, we are a distracted people. I mean, I, we, 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 before we turn to prayer, as important we, our intention is, prayer is really important, but our direction is, well, what's on Facebook? Well, what are the sports scores? I need to see the highlights. Uh, I got to get breakfast, got to get the kids off to school, got to get to work, and uh, I'll get to God later. But then there's lunchtime, and then there's a meeting, and then there's uh, kids off at sports, and then there's my own sports, and then there's television, and then there's movies. And before you know it, our head hits the pillow again, and we're like, man, another missed opportunity. Tomorrow, God, tomorrow is the day. That's, that's, is, we're we're going to get better. And so you, you think tomorrow, and we, it's just, we're easily distracted. We're easily distracted. And so uh, part of it is just recognizing that and, and saying, well, how, how do we make a change? How do we move forward? I, I believe Jesus wants us to make a change. Uh, and he's going to be helping us with it. But I'm going to ask you to do something for the next seven days. I'm not asking for the next month. I'm not asking to change your life forever. I'm going to ask you to do three things that come out of this passage today uh, for the next seven days. They're very simple. All of us can do it. Three things. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll begin to look at these things. Matthew chapter 6 is on, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, on the path toward God, on a life lived on purpose, he's going to tell us about the role of prayer in recalibrating our hearts, recalibrating my, our Godward direction. But before we even look there, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, uh, we get some insight of what, why Jesus said the things he said. Because when, when in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells us about prayer, something first happens. It says that Jesus went off to pray. And when he came back, the disciples came up to him and they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Lord, when you go off and you spend time with your father, something happens. Like, like it's not a burden for you. Like, you are filled. You are, you are full of joy. You're, you've got a renewed sense of mission and purpose in your life. So, so Lord, teach us how to do that. There, there, there's just this hunger to know how to pray. They enroll with Christ in the school of prayer. And so he tells them how to pray. But, but in, in Matthew chapter 6, we get a little bit even more context. And he, he starts it off with a warning. He's got a couple of warnings of what prayer is and what isn't. See, maybe the reason you're dissatisfied with your prayer life is you think prayer is only asking God to do things that you want him to do and the way you want him to do it. So you have health needs, you have financial needs, you have career needs, and you are very specific with your prayers. And and the Bible invites you to do that, but that's only one small slice of the pie of prayer. But if that's all you pray, God, here's my three things. They're the same three things as yesterday. You begin to get bored. You begin to get repetitive. And you're like, why pray? So I want to I want to encourage you with something else. He he gives us a warning, and then he begi- gives us three things that I would like us each to do this week. First of all, it says, "And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on, at the street corners, and they love to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full." He says, some people think prayer is a way to show other people how holy and righteous and spiritual they are. And, God, and Jesus says, well, guess what? That's, that's all you get. Very proud of you. Other people think that you might be kind of spiritual, but they probably don't. They see right through you anyway. You don't, don't be a hypocrite. Don't do that. Well, what should we do then, Jesus? And here becomes the first one. Just a moment. He says, but when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and, and pray to your father who is in secret. 
And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Did you notice the intentionality of it? So here's the first thing I want you to do this week. Pick a time and a place to pray, just for seven days. But, but not, not your intention, but you're going to actually pick a time and a place. So maybe you're a morning person. You're like, you know what? I'm a morning person. I get my cup of coffee, and, and I'm gonna, I, I can do three minutes. I can do five minutes. I can do ten minutes. Whatever your thing is, don't try to hit a home run, as Matthew said last week. Just pick a time and a place. Maybe you're a, you're a lunch person. You say, I, I only need ten minutes to eat. I get a half hour. That's when I'm going to pray this week. Or maybe you're a night person. You have to wait till the house calms down and everyone goes to bed, and then you can connect with God. That's your time and a place. So, so right now, in your seat, pick a time and a place. Think through your week. Think through your day. This is the time, and commit to God. I said at the first week, commit to God. Commit to owning your own growth. This is the first step on prayer. Pick a time and a place. Say, well, Mark, aren't we supposed to pray without ceasing? Aren't we to have spontaneous prayer? I hope you have all that. But, but so often we miss all that as well. And so Jesus also says it's good to be intentional. So pick a time and a place. And share with whoever you came with today. Share with your friends or your spouse. Hey, this is the time and a place. Would you just ask me about that throughout the week? How's my time and a place? That's the first thing. Be intentional. And he says, and your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Of the 10,000 rewards that could come in prayer, the ultimate one Jesus is driving at is your greatest need. You say, well, Mark, I know my greatest need. I've got this problem. I've got this health issue. I've got this financial thing. I've got this relational problem. That's my greatest need. And I would just ask you for a moment just to consider maybe that's not your greatest need. That your greatest need is the greatest reward that you can get in prayer, that you get more of God in prayer. And so Jesus says, there is a reward in that. And just trust him on this. If, I have any, uh, if Jesus has any pull in your life, trust him on this. He will reward you. And then he gives a, another warning, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And he says, so, so there's the Pharisees who love to just show how religious they are. And then there's the pagans who have a lot of different gods and a lot of different formulas to pray. And they, they, they work themselves up and they use lots of flowery language and they lot use lots of repetition and lots of, uh, of time. And they, they, they've got this formula with their gods. If they say the right things and do it enough and do it long enough, then their gods have got to uh, reciprocate tit for tat. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. He says, don't be like them. That's, that's just trying to manipulate God. Do not be like them. And then he drops this bomb on them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And Jesus says, when you pray, think through it theologically. We all know this, and yet when we pray, we're like, God, I need this, 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 and this. Some of you, some of you ever been with informational prayers? Like, Lord, just be with Susie. She, she got a compound fracture, and there's only two surgeons in the nation, and she's got a peanut allergy, God. And you're like, do you know who you're talking to? He knows all this already. You might be thinking, well, if God already knows everything I need, then why even pray? And if you're asking that question, ding, 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 you're starting to understand maybe there's something more to prayer than just God checking your list off. Well, then how do we pray? How do we recalibrate our hearts? I'm glad you asked. Verse 9, pray then like this. Now, he doesn't say pray this. He says this is a, a springboard, a launch for your prayers. 
Somehow, even in this prayer, sometimes we've turned it into the pagan prayers. Just repeat this like a mantra. This is not what Jesus intends for us when he teaches us how to pray. He says, no, pray like this. And he gives us the second thing. This first one is pick a time and a place. So you got the time and place. Second one is start with God. And we'll unpack that in just a moment. Start with God. So instead of saying, God, I've got this problem and this problem and this problem, just lift your eyes a little bit. Take the first few moments to look up, to, to ponder God. And so he says, our Father. Our Father. This was a revolutionary idea that came through Jesus, that God can be related to as a Father. And he's not just a reflection of our earthly fathers. He is a perfect heavenly father. It speaks of intimate relationship. And we get to say, God, our father. We were enemies. We were rebels. We were sinners apart from God. But Jesus came and he paid the price that you and I couldn't pay. And on the cross, he blew open the doorways to heaven. And God didn't just tolerate us. He said, you are now my son and my daughter. And we get to go and be with him. We get to enter into his room with him. And he is present. The theologians call this the imminence of God. That when you pray by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, you enter in and God is Father. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of days. He knows everything about you. And in spite of all that knowledge, he still loves us. And he says, you get to call me Father. He wants it to be personal, relational. It's amazing. That should, I mean, even that could just kind of take up your prayers for the next seven days, just pondering that first point that God delights to be with you. Our Father. But he says, but, but, but it's not just that God is imminent, not just that God is present in the room with you. It gets better than that. Our Father in heaven. This talks about the transcendence of God because if God was only an imminent God, that might bring some comfort, but we would still have grounds for anxiety, for worry, because God, you're with me now, but well, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow and who knows what's going to happen the next day. And, and so you would still have anxiety, but, but as you turn your attention to God, you see him as father, but you also see him in heaven. He is transcendent. He speaks and quasars come into existence. He knows every day he is past, present, and future. He controls every molecule in the universe. And God invites us into his throne room. And there should be that kind of tension in prayer and worship. Like, God, you're my father. You're my dad. You're my daddy. Oh, but you are the holy one of Israel. And so we get like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Just a glimpse of the hallowed holiness God in heaven. And we're like, oh, my word. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And we get to step in into that place in prayer and that will recalibrate your heart right away because when you see God as Father, intimate, loving, and present, but also God as sovereign, dominion, glory over all, that brings perspective. And so that naturally flows into worship. Hallowed be your name. Your name is holy. We sing with the angels. God, you are present, but you are in control. There is nothing outside of your control. And when you really experience that, not just know that, but experience it. Like Jonathan Edwards in a famous sermon said, I could talk to you about honey, and I could use a lot of words about honey, but when you taste honey on your tongue, that's a different experience. And so it is with experiencing God. 
We can know a lot. But when we taste it and we are transformed, we will be transformed. And so verse 10 naturally follows out of that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So sometimes there are, there are, there are clowns out there that will say, hey, to pray God your will be done is a lack of faith. I say, do you read the Bible? <laughs> It's not a lack of faith. It's the ultimate expression of faith. If you've experienced God and you see him as present but also sovereign over all, in that moment you're like, you know what? I'm not sovereign over all. You know what? I don't know what tomorrow happens. I, I don't know where you're leading this, but I trust you. And so, therefore, easily and with full of faith, I can say, your will be done. Make up there. Come down here in my life. And I don't know about this. I don't, I've got, I got struggles. I've got pain. I've got hurts. And I don't know what you're doing. But, but since I've spent time with you, I see that you're in control. A couple months ago, I got to go to a pastor's and wives retreat. And one of my friends, Edward Paz, is a pastor out in uh, the Bay Area in California. And he's uh, battling a, a very severe eye infection right now. Even when he was preaching, his eyes were really cloudy. He couldn't really see. And they're hoping that the eye infection would go away. But as he was preaching, he was just saying, you know, the, the infection has helped turn his attention to God. But as he's turned his attention to God, rather than asking God day after day, please heal my eye, please heal my eye, please heal my eye, he starts with God and he just has been pondering the, the beauty, the majesty, the glory of God. And he says, you know what, most times after my time of prayer pondering that, I don't even get to the point where I'm like, hey, also I'd like to see God. He's like, it seems foolish to me at that point to even pray, like, oh, Lord, I think you should do this. He's like, not that I can ask that. It's just having experienced God as, as the, the sovereign one who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I know he's got this. Whether he wants to take away my eyesight or not, he's got this. And I'm just delighting in his presence. So we start with picking a time and a place. We, we start with God. We turn our eyes heavenward. And then third, we pray the Bible. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. Part, part of what's difficult about prayer, sometimes we think, man, what am I going to say? What words am I going to use? And we just are kind of, we can say it for a couple minutes, but we don't have anything else to say. I'm going to give you a way to, to fuel your prayer, to pray the Bible. Did you know Jesus prayed the Bible? Do you know Jesus on the cross, as he's crying out to his father, he's actually quoting Psalm 22? Do you know there's a whole book in the Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit of prayer and praise called the book of Psalms? And it's in intended for us to, to stir on our prayers, to give richness, uh, a biblical framework uh, to our prayers. And through the Psalms, we can bring our concerns, our, our lives into it and, and pray through them. You say, Mark, well, I thought prayer was supposed to be personal. I thought prayer was supposed to be my own words. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, in worship, sometimes your favorite song comes on or a hymn comes on. And though you did not write the words, a line in that hymn or, or a line in that song, when, when it is sung and you join your voices with the chorus, what happens? Your praise rises. Your affection rises. Your experience of worship is better because you've prayed through and sung through what someone else has done. How much more if we do that with 
the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit's book. So we pray the Bible. Well, what does that mean? Well, I, I read this book this week. Actually, Nancy, give us, let me borrow it. Thank you very much. And, and I, like I said, I, I've read a lot of books on prayer, and this is not the most profound book on prayer. Um, and it doesn't try to be. It's simply called Praying the Bible. And it's simply just trying to show you that you can take the Word of God, particularly the Psalms, you can take your life with that to the Word, and, as you, and it just shows you, kind of gives you some pointers and some tips of how you would take a psalm and begin to uh, pray that psalm. Use those themes for your themes. Use those words for your words. And so uh, I was reading it and I was like, well, it's, it's pretty good. It's okay. You know, this is good. But then he, he, in chapter seven, he stops and he says, now this is the most important part of the book. You're actually going to do it. He's like, don't, don't just blow through this. Set a timer for seven minutes. Some of us have a hard time praying for seven minutes. What am I going to say for seven minutes? Well, if prayer is only asking God to do the things that you want and living in the suburbs, like no, none of us actually pray, Lord, give us our day, our daily bread and mean it. And so we have a very short list for the most part. And, and so, uh, but, but if we use the Bible to pray, you, you find that your prayer life begins to blossom, begins to grow. And so he says, take seven minutes. And, and, and I took seven minutes and I picked one of the Psalms he suggested and, and uh, set my timer, began to pray through it. Began, and before I knew it, I wasn't even through it. The timer goes off. I'm like, wow, it, it actually worked. And so I said, said to one friend, I said, it might not be the best book on prayer, but it might if it actually gets you to pray. And so I want to highly encourage you to do this. Um, if you have a library card at, at, in Douglas County, you, you can get Hoopla on your phone and listen to the book. It takes two hours, or I like double time, so it takes one hour. It takes one hour, you can do this. It'll help you do that. I'm going to suggest something in a minute. So we, we, we pick a time and a place. We start with God. We pray the Bible. This week I've been working through uh, Psalm 63. So I just want to give you kind of a context of what that would look like. In Psalm 63... David gives us some context. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So maybe you got a lot of stress in this place today and, and you're just hoping that God will meet you where you're at. Well, none of us are as stressed out as, as David is in this moment. It's late in his life. He screwed up a lot of his life. He's, he's messed up his family a lot. But nevertheless, he in faith turns to God. His son Absalom is led a rebellion and is looking to murder him. And so he is literally hiding in the wilderness, trying to escape the soldiers that are looking to murder him. So you talk about stress, you know, I think our prayer request would be, hey, uh, uh, gospel community, can you just pray that my son doesn't murder me? Like that would be a prayer that we would bring to the table. And that'd be okay. But, but something happens in David. In this moment of intense stress, intense need, uh, he doesn't ask for deliverance there. In fact, he gets better than that. He starts with God. Oh God, you are my God. He remembers who he is and whose he is. And something in that remembering, this is probably written after the fact, but he preserves it for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that, it absolutely changes everything because he now realizes who he is and whose he is. 
He says, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He has this soul desperation, this soul thirst, this soul hunger. So if you're praying through this, you, you acknowledge like David that God, you are my God and just be blown away with that. And then you say, well, maybe my soul isn't so hungry. Maybe my soul isn't so thirsty. You just say, Lord, would you give me the kind of hunger and thirst that David had here? God loves to answer that prayer. Would you develop my taste bud for you, Lord? Verse 2, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He starts with God. He says, whoa, God is powerful. He is glorious. The sanctuary was the way God met with his people in, in, in David's time. And David is blown away by this. But, but Christian, you have so much more to be blown away by than what David had. David could go to a place and and see the presence of God, but we get to go to the Word. We get to go to the cross and look at the power and glory of God on the cross, making atonement for your sin and mine, and we get to behold that. David didn't have that. We get to pray deeper, better than David does. So we behold his power and glory, and then he realizes what's absolutely true, what his greatest need was, Verse 3, because your steadfast love, your unfailing, your unconditional, uh, your hesed love is what the Hebrew says, is better than life. Somehow he's so transformed in this moment before God. His heart is so recalibrated to God. He says, you know what? Even if Absalom and his thugs find me and they kill me, it doesn't matter because your love is better than life. Wouldn't you like to get to a point of peace and serenity in your prayer life where you're like, yeah, Lord, your love is better than life. So, so yeah, I've got my prayer list, and I, I'd like you to do that, but, but, but you're, you're bigger than that, and I just want to have an experience of you. So that rolls into worship. Some, some ask, is, is Psalms a book of, of worship, or is it a book of prayer? And the answer is yes. So your worship and your prayer uh, intertwines and goes back and forth as you work through these things. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. If you do give me life, I'm going to be blessing you. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David understands he's an embodied soul. It's not just a a thinking thing on a stick. And so he raises his hands. It's not a denominational thing. It's a worship thing when you see and savor God. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied. I love this line. It's like my new life verse. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, like soul barbecue. He's like, I remember having this amazing meal. That's what my soul is having right now. God, thank you very much. This isn't a kale diet. This is is fat and rich food. So that's going to roll into more worship. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And he just keeps going. I mean, this is David. He, he could die any moment, but he is so transformed by God in his presence. He's able to write this. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. And so that's what I want to encourage us to do this week. Just for one week each day to pick a time and a place, to get alone with God, shut your door, to, to uh, come before God and, and, and start with God before we bring our burdens. And, and he welcomes those. But then we begin to pray the Bible. And again, I would encourage you to read this book. But, but Donald Whitney, he suggests uh, these seven psalms to start with. I think they're in the next slide there. 
Psalm 23, 27, 31, 37, 42, 66, and 103. I'll put those with the podcast in case you want to check that out. But pick one of those and just begin to work it. Maybe you're like, I, I've never prayed more than two minutes. Okay, we'll set a timer for five minutes. And just begin to work your way. You get to a verse where you're like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't really apply. Guess what? You just go to the next verse. You don't have to be rigid about this. You're just saying, God, this is your Holy Spirit-inspired prayer book. And I want, just like worship rises in my soul when I, when I sing a song or a hymn, I want this to rise in my soul when I pray. So, so try that. And here's why. As we recalibrate our hearts on a life lived on purpose. I love 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul talks about uh, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We are being made into the image of Christ just one degree of glory at a time. Now, in, in fast-paced American culture, we don't like that. Can we get 10 degrees, God? Can we get 20 degrees? No, just one degree at a time. And if this week you pick a time and a place and you start with God and you open your Bible, and you pray through these psalms. Next week, if we as a faith family do this, we'll be one degree of glory changed. And if by God's grace that that continues to roll on to a little bit of a habit, and a month from now, we as a faith family have met with God and looked to God and been, been praying, God, I believe that you would walk into a different church a month from now than you would today. And Again, if God would be gracious to us, if, if a year from now we, we, we were able to be a people that continually recalibrate our hearts, I think you would see different families. You would see different neighborhoods. You would see a different city. Because God always moves first when his people come and get on their face before him. That's our hope. That's why we exist as a church. We exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And we start on our face before God. To that end, let me pray for us this week. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you uh, invite us to call you Father. Lord, even though we were enemies of God, you died for us. and You made us adopted sons and daughters. Lord, help us, uh, especially those of us that maybe have never experienced that intimacy that, that we can call you Father. May that just become a, a, a profound thing in our lives this week. But Lord, help us to also see that you are the sovereign one over all the universe. You are, all, you are wise. We don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon, but you know every day. So Lord, let us pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that you do a work in us by your spirit, that you would make us a people of prayer for our joy and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.